0: mm <laughs> And welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with Carrie Kozlowski, the co-founder and COO of Upfront Healthcare, which is an organization that provides an automated, personalized care navigation platform. In this conversation, we discuss some of the specific efforts Carrie's led to ensure gender equity and to positively impact diversity, equity, and inclusion at her organization. You're going to like her. I just know it. So let's get started. Thank you, Carrie, for joining me today. I like to think about healthcare. Well, first of all, I'm always learning. I feel like the healthcare system It's super complicated, and regardless of how much learning you do, there's always more to learn. And so, when we consider it as a three thousand piece puzzle, or a ten thousand piece puzzle, or a hundred thousand piece puzzle, you know, part of what I'm trying to do here is figure out and learn from everybody who holds a piece of that expertise. So, if you wouldn't mind, please taking a moment to introduce yourself and telling me and our audience about your piece of the health IT puzzle.
1: Sure. Thank you. My name is Carrie Kozlowski. I am the co-founder and COO here at Upfront. And my current piece of the puzzle at Upfront, what we do is we focus on helping patients get the care they need. And we do that through activating patients through proactive and personalized information that reaches them where they are and really gives them not only the what they need to do, the how they need to do it, the where, and all of that is wrapped in health communication science that helps to motivate, persuade, and influence them to take that action. So thinking about equity, thinking about personalization, thinking about building trust, all of those are aspects of what we do to help patients take the next steps in their care. I think that's
0: the first time I've heard that phrase, health communication science. Can you speak a little bit more
1: about that? I am not an expert, I will share that, but we do have a team here who are really grounded in health communication science. There's a master's program here in Chicago at Northwestern that was the first of its kind. And the way that I look at it is I think about you know folks who have studied consumer behavior across industries and how you motivate a consumer to take an action, and then you wrap that through the lens of healthcare, which is how do you persuade and motivate someone to take a healthcare action? That can be a patient. Or it could be a provider. How do we help and motivate and persuade providers to take actions as we all try to transform and move the healthcare system into kind of a better place?
0: Okay, that's helpful. So I hear a lot of people talking about meeting patients where they are. And I think that means different things to different people. What does it mean for you and upfront?
1: For us, meeting them where they are first and foremost is that we're providing value. Right? Are we helping you? And the way that we help you is hopefully we're meeting you where you are because it's relevant. right? So we want to be outreaching and communicating with a patient about what they need to do, something that's relevant. So two contrasting ways I might look at this. I might get a postcard from a local health system here in Chicago saying they've opened a new mammography center in my neighborhood. That's great. I've forgotten about that postcard Seven months later, when I need to do something, I might even forgotten I need to do something. So at the time period where it's relevant for me, when I need to take an action, I'm communicated with information that is simplified down to the minimum pieces of information I need to know at that time. So it's not going to a marketing website of a health system or a practice where there's a zillion different services it's narrowing everything down being relevant and then wrapping all of that in in again that personalization of like why do i need to do it and why is it important for my care
0: i mean when overwhelm is real decision fatigue is real it sounds like what you're doing is giving people the the minimum amount of information that they need that is actionable that will make a difference in their life and that it's like like timely so like here's I what mean. you need to know right now if you're going to take a step do this
1: one thing. And then I am assuming leaving them down the, the path, right? Exactly. Yep. And, and then t- the last piece of that is making it frictionless, right? Ease my way. So d- I don't want to think and I want it to be easy and I want it to be relevant, timely. And also I can take the action when I'm ready to take the action. So this kind of boxing me into banker's hours of being able to ask questions or get my care that's a little bit limiting for some folks.
0: Well, okay. So can we get more specific? Are we talking in terms of text messaging? Is it emails? Mm -hmm. Is it a postcard? Is it all of the above?
1: Yep. So we think of the omni-channel communication that layers in text messaging, emails, and I'll say this digital voice, and Mm -hmm. I would love to come back to that one for a second, because it's a little mind-boggling for me. But the idea that we need to be able to reach someone in the best way that we have information. So the first thing is to know that we're starting with data that our clients, health systems, practices, et cetera, have access to. We all know that data is not the most accurate and the most reliable. It may not even be complete, depending on when it was gathered and who gathered it. And so we don't want to lose opportunity to help somebody because we don't have an email address or we don't have a mobile phone number. And so we kind of are using all those modalities, but our Institute for Patient Activation Research helps to study which channels we should use in what sequence, right? And continually kind of learn and improve upon that to make sure that we're reaching people in the best way possible where they're going to get the highest activation rate. And the part I will go back to for a second is the digital voice piece and Ben and I, Ben's our co-founder here, like to joke about, you know, we've been working together for 20 years across four or five different companies. And sometimes it's astounding that we're doing IVR in some ways. But the way that we've really reflected on that and adding that over the last year is really through the lens of equity and reaching everybody. So if our mission is to help everybody get the care they need, that is the way that some people need and have to be reached. And in addition, from an equity perspective perspective, An SMS or a microsite where we're delivering this health communication science that's linked from an SMS or an email isn't always the most accessible for all of the end users. So we are layering in this other piece to make sure that we can reach you however you can be reached in the way that's most likely to activate you to take that care.
0: What do you do in like this, the scenarios where people don't have a cell phone? Like when we're talking about access and equity and people that actually like, we don't think about what a privilege it is to actually be the owner of a mobile device. So if somebody Mm -hmm. doesn't have a mobile device and they're in your universe,
1: how would you reach them? Yep. So we would use email or potentially calling if they're still on a landline or voice over IP. So all of those are, are options of how we would reach somebody. I think it it's surprising always how many people do have a cell phone, but it's not always the best way to get to everybody. And so that's, that's the methodology that we would kind of... Across the lay of the land. When you're talking about the services
0: that you're providing, are they relevant to a specific condition or is it primary care or like the patient population that you're dealing with? Is that like how how do you manage that?
1: This is the part that was a constraint that Ben and I put on ourselves, having been kind of really working on how do we help patients get necessary care for many, many years now whatever we do has to work for everyone. It cannot work for a subsegment of people that have a specific condition. It should not be limited to a subsegment of people who have a certain insurance plan. This is where we pushed ourselves to think about how do we scale and how do we think about building something that reaches all patients? So our platform enables a number of different solutions so we can help people you know, get recalled for preventive care. We can help people be reminded and or quickly and easily reschedule Care. We help people enroll in services like care management services or care coordination services if they qualify, help people navigate an episode of care like a surgical experience, and help people get connected to the referrals that a provider may have made for them to continue to get care. So kind of, if you think about that, breadcrumbing them through. So the entire experience, now at any given point in time, you might need something, I might need something different. I might need three things this year. You might need one thing, right? So again, it's relevant. It's personalized to the end of one, right? And how Mm -hmm. we're communicating to you and what you need. But we're looking across the entire experience of how you're getting the care that you need and making sure that you are being led down that path. And then it's really easy to get that care.
0: Now, sometimes like as a patient, you're often like interfacing with... You know, the health system that you're working with. And there's, even though they have tons of vendors and suppliers and things that are working, you know, in tandem mm-hmm. with them, that's not necessarily what the patient may see. So when a patient is interacting with your platform, is it like under the name upfront or is it kind of disguised and kind of integrated into some other part of healthcare?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So this is that discussion of what's our mission and knowing your mission really guides how you kind of bring your product out to market. And for us, the mission is helping patients get care, in which case it doesn't need to have our brand. It's not about our identity or anyone knowing that we're doing that work. It's about the health system, really the provider. So we're hoping that that communication is, hey, Carrie, Dr. Smith wants to make sure you're getting the care you need and then kind of guides you through what that is. And so that it really needs to come from the trusted resource that is most likely to help the patient take the action.
0: Understood. So that means you must be sort of like embedded into a lot of different clinics or systems. what's mm-hmm. okay, got it. Now how so you said you've been working with your co-founder Ben for more than 20 years. Can you uh-huh. talk to me a little bit about your professional journey and what I've been loving asking folks is did ten year old Carrie have any idea that you would be sitting
1: where you are professionally? Such a good question. So I, um, I think, so I'll tell you about my professional journey and then we'll try to reflect as far back as 10 here in a second. But so my journey started, I wanted to work with kids and I wanted to help people. And so my career path going into my undergraduate degree was occupational therapy. So I started my career working in a number of different care settings, doing occupational therapy, primarily ended up being adult rehab versus pediatrics. I really loved the patient care aspect of it. I loved working with really complex patients who maybe had multi-trauma or a number of different things across kind of mental health and physical health. What I found myself gravitating to is, oh, there is a new payment reform coming out. Let me read the entire binder. Or, oh, how do we help improve the throughput and flow so patients have a better experience while they're getting care here? And so started to think about how do I kind of do more of those things that I kept finding myself attracted to. And This was more than 20 years ago. I didn't really know about like the MHA or the MPH degrees. Like my, you know, my father's an engineer. So the the options were doing things that were vocationally based. And then you could go to law school, med school, or business school in terms of the mentorship that I received. So I went back and did my MBA and Ben and I both met in an entrepreneurship class. And the story I often tell is, you know, when you're in grad school or in any college experience. And there's like a group project and immediately 80% of the class breaks into four groups. And there's like the five people left over that Ben and I were two of those five people left over. I think... We both worked full-time and went to grad school full-time, so maybe didn't maximize the networking. So by default, did a business plan. We actually won the business plan competition for the year and sort of just started to kind of build this relationship. And he eventually recruited me to a company he was working for at the time. And we've worked together ever since. He started another company. I joined him early. That company was acquired by the advisory board, who's now since been acquired by Optum. And then we started this company about five and a half years ago. So it's just sort of on this shared mission and really having that, that kind of perspective I did
0: something similar not necessarily partner wise but that whole like working full-time while going to school for full-time during my MBA and I really felt like those two things worked hand in hand and were complementary for to each other and re- like I felt like what I was learning in basically working in a startup I could apply those lessons in my MBA and then lessons I was learning learning through my program I could bring back to my startup And it sounds like
1: maybe something similar was going on with you. Yeah, very similar. I think you're, you're right. And I also think that that hustle, I know we're not supposed to be promoting hustle as much anymore, but I do think that I learned you're going to be an entrepreneur, there is an aspect of hustle. And so doing school and work full-time definitely readied me for that career in entrepreneurship. Oh, for sure. I never worked so
0: hard in my life. except for during. I mean, I, I'm a hard a worker, but holy cow. When I look back, I'm like, I don't know how I had the energy for all of that. That was a lot. Very true.
1: Yes. <laughs> so what about 10-year-old you? So 10-year-old you was thinking about maybe business? Yeah, 10-year-old me... I think was I lived in West Virginia, actually, when I was 10 and and moved to Texas, which was a big swing. But I think what I had no idea about this kind of career, I didn't, you know, my career was my dad was an engineer. And then I saw teachers every day and that was about it. And so I think from that perspective, I probably just thought I would be a teacher. I don't even think I mean... When I was 10, we were still using rotary phones and I was hiding in the pantry to talk to my friends, right? Because we got the long cord. So the idea that we would have technology that would allow us to kind of communicate to people in real time, specific information, understanding who they were in a personalized way, is, I don't think I could have even imagined that. The biggest deal I remember that time of like my sister sneaking in
0: like, oh, I trying to listen to her phone conversation from the other landline. (laughs) Like what tricks you would
1: use. (laughs) Exactly. That was the whole entire strategy. I I will say as I think about it the one thing that I, I always learned, I think I moved around a lot as a kid. So the idea that I think that's where I got my empathy from of an appreciation of different kinds of people and different kinds of life experiences and cultures and needs, probably a lot earlier than maybe some people my age because I had that unique experience. And so I think when I do think about what we do and that being able to apply it to all people and without judgment, without, you know, using words like, oh, they're non-compliant. Well, there's probably a reason. How do we unlock that and help somebody get the care they need? That probably does come from that kind of early childhood experience.
0: I love that. So I guess I'd also like to know, given where you sit now, think of it in two ways. What advice would you give to somebody else, either starting their career or what advice would you give to 23-year-old Carrie?
1: starting her career? And those might be two different answers. Yeah, I think they probably are. I will say, so my career is very organic. And I think that my natural decision-making kind of bias is intuitive. And so I have just kind of continuously explored interesting opportunities that I thought found really challenging. And every time that sort of led me to the next kind of door and the next door. And I feel like, There's a lot of pressure on young people today to have a career path mapped out for the next. I mean, the fact that we think people should pick majors that are going to be at least their first career when they're 16 and 17 years old feels like an incredible amount of pressure for our young people. So I think in general, like just this idea of like, I have had multiple careers. Like even when I started as an occupational therapist, like technology still seemed like a million miles away from anything I could ever do. So not closing doors to me, is a big piece of advice. And then the idea that you just kind of continue to explore opportunities that are interesting to you and trust that that will take you on a path. It maybe is a little bit uncomfortable for others, but that that part I've always liked. And I, I think the other piece is uh, younger and probably something you hear from a lot of other folks that you interview is trust and confidence, right? That, you know, You do know what you're doing and you can do that. And I think that's significantly different now, I hope, for today's 23-year-olds than it was for me when I was 23 in terms of just seeing more women do more things in different roles in different companies is hopefully really exciting and breed some of that confidence.
0: Well, I think you're, you're bringing up something's coming up for me that is even thinking about older generations of women, when I think about like the, our parents and what they knew of, like what, how they could guide us was very different because for them, women's roles were very specific. If they couldn't see the future, my mom was constantly asking me, what's your five-year plan? What's your 10-year plan? And I was like, Oftentimes I don't know. I just I'm following my passion. I'm I'm collecting skills, etc. And a lot of women that I've talked to have had the answer that, you know, the job that they're currently in did not exist 10 and 20 years ago. So can you imagine as a teenager somebody trying to figure their life out like there's there's no way to predict the future. There's going to be so many opportunities that like are so off of our current radar. And so I hope that what, one thing that we learn as we guide the next generation through their professional paths is that like, it's okay to not know. And it's okay to sort of let the path itself guide you in a way, as long as you keep moving, you know, one foot in front of the other, et cetera. But I think that there's something kind of like a nugget in there just around perspective that is generationally different.
1: It's such a good point. And I think that when I talk to young people and do mentorship today, to me, it's this idea of like, find something that you're good at, right? And then apply it in a space you care a lot about. So it's like, should I be a marketer? Should I be a finance person, right? It doesn't matter. Like, what are you good at? And then find the space to apply it where your passions lie. So I love the ocean and I like to, you know, design things and be a marketer for, you know, I don't know, a new oceanography company. I I, Whatever, I can't envision those things. But I think that's the part of like, just put the two spectrums together and start. Take the first step.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And it's like, that's the start. And, the, and if you fail, that's okay too, because you're going to learn a lot through failing. I mean, is there anything that hasn't gone your way that maybe like lessons learned from like things you're like, oh, well, I didn't pre- predict that. Or in your journey that there has been failures that maybe you learned more from than
1: had everything gone the way you had hoped? There's lots of things that haven't gone my way this idea that, and this is, I think, new, something we're talking about in society. And I try to apply it probably more with my kids than I ever learned. But this idea that like it, mistakes are learning opportunities, like that's not how I was raised. So the idea that like, and that's something I've had to really focus on overcoming is being comfortable, not having an answer not knowing what's next, not like being able to help somebody with a problem, right. and And not seeing that as a failure, but seeing that as an opportunity. And so Think you're hitting on on some of those specifics. I'm trying to think of a a really good example, and I guess the only thing I, I kind of think about is this idea of the message that we got when I was young was you can do anything, you can have it all. Like that's the new women's message. You can have it all. You could even be president. Like wow, that's mind blowing. But this idea that like what well, it's not going to be all the things all the time. Like there's a little bit of a setup. I feel like going into that kind of a family and work and like being able to kind of redefine what that meant took a lot of letting go of like trying to be the person who didn't let any ball drop on any front at any time. That's unrealistic and exhausting.
0: I love that perspective because it's true. It's like you can have everything, but that also means you need to do everything. And who has the capacity for all of that?
1: <laughs> no one. <laughs>
0: yeah. One thing that has been really landing with me is this concept of growth and comfort. Where I'm like, okay, the both of those things are very important, but you can't have both at the same time. And you know that little like cartoon about your comfort zone and like where the magic happens, and they're like, Oh, that's kind of a fun one. But I feel like, hey, listen, if you're not comfortable, that means you're growing and reframing it into thinking like, okay, that's actually a good thing. That's actually an opportunity to your point. And it's a a chance for me to like get better in some way. That has been really helpful for me lately and just thinking like, oh, am I uncomfortable? Great. Good for me.
1: Congratulations. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that that especially in the last year and a half between the pandemic and I would say a little bit of a reckoning of how we think about race in our country and a few other topics has been a really important part of growing. Right. Like I have a perspective on you know, I've hired people, I've I've developed people in the past, and I think a lot differently about that now. I have a different perspective and a different lens that I try, not perfectly, not consistently use in terms of how we support our employees and how we bring employees on and how we help them grow and develop and what their needs are. And so I do think that that is a really important, like being uncomfortable, is a really big part of... To me, that's the reward, right? Because when you're growing, that's when you come out the other side. And that's like that positive reinforcement of like, oh, I'm thinking as a different person now.
0: And also you get to look back and be like, wow, look how far I've come. You know, that was really challenging. And it's typically something you can be proud of. Mm-hmm. I am interested in, from a business perspective, how that has... Well, what have you learned on that? Like, Because it has been a crazy couple years, right? So... Yeah in being uncomfortable and taking that on of like how you want to treat your employees in a particular way to help them, like that's not an easy thing to do. Can you talk about how you have incorporated that and maybe what difference it has made or maybe like some of the challenges around, like it's easier said than done, right? Like, Mm -hmm. And you probably don't feel like you know the right way to do it all the time. And I imagine it's uncomfortable. So can you speak
1: to any of that? Yeah, I think it's the humbleness that comes with experience. So, you know, one of the things that, you know, we did here is is Ben and I, like a lot of companies a year and a half, two years ago, started to realize that there was some issues, right? Um, Not necessarily with us or our company, but just in society that we needed to sort of do some self-reflection and own that and have the hard conversations that are really uncomfortable. And I, I don't love conflict. I don't love some of those kinds of things like many others. But the other piece is the letting go of your way of doing things and going to the team. And so we we added, right? We've never done this before. We added a DEI team and none of our executive team sits on it. We are a place to resource. Like My role is to be the sponsor and to unblock and support. But we trust that there's a lot of people on our team who actually know a lot more than we do. About a lot of different topics, and we want them to bring all of their perspectives together and guide our culture in this way. And it doesn't have to be because I know it or I read three books and now I know it, right? Uh-huh. It's the listening and learning and trusting, right? The people who know more. And so that is an adaption, right? Like of how we've thought about building a team and a culture, and maybe the little bit more of the top-down kind of way that we did things 15 years ago.
0: I love that. So when you're talking about a team, because I feel like a lot of people will hire a person and they are now going to be the champion of DEI. So what does your team look like? How does Yeah, that
1: affect- no, I, I, we, we sort of said, Hey, we all had this conversation as, and we were much smaller, you know, two years ago around this topic. And we said, Hey, this is something that we need to think differently about. And some people said, I have a, I have a passion here. And so, this is what I'd like to spend some time. I'd like to kind of have a role in this. And it, it happened very organically. And then there's an invitation to others to join. And, and we re-up that invitation as our team has grown every time someone new joins. But it's been a really great way to celebrate and honor the different perspectives. And, and when we think about hiring and HR, what we do in our, our hiring process is a really small company. We blind every resume. We have removed a lot of things like educational requirements, all at the advice of our team who said, this is the better way to do it. We're looking for candidates who are qualified to do a job, whether they had this degree or that degree, whether they live here or there. And then how do we remove all the initial bias that limits people from screening, intentional or unintentional? Totally. we put a ton of investment and time and thinking into that as a business, and I think it has made a big difference in the team that we've grown and hired since since their advice and their continued advice.
0: You know, I know a woman who named her daughters names that could be, well, put on a resume and thought that they were boys, like Ryan, for example, you mm-hmm. know. And it's so interesting to think that that went into, like, that was such an important thing, that bias of, like, thinking 20 years ahead. ahead. Yeah, that she's like, I'm going to support my girls in this way because of that. So I've heard of people that have done the, like, blind auditions for an orchestra or whatnot, but I have not heard about it yet on on the hiring approach. And I think that's super yeah. smart.
1: It's, we were doing it manually for a while or we would like, why would, was the kind of the first triage and I would blind everything and send it to the hiring manager. But now we, we have some, a system that we're using to do that. The, the fun part is it does rename everybody. They've done their research, a combination of colors, vegetables, and fruits. I love so it. So we have had like, should we make smoothies of the people we hire? And like, you know, there's some interesting ideas there that make <laughs> it kind of fun to talk about as a team, so...
0: That's great. Yeah, that's really that's good. Cool. And okay, what about interviewing? I had a conversation the other day around um, people doing like video interviews, and I believe that they were interviewing a candidate who was trans and didn't feel comfortable being on camera. And so they claimed like, oh, my camera's broken or whatever, but it basically like kind of trying to take out that amount of bias around how they interact
1: with them. Is that something, I don't know. I It's a great idea. We haven't even talked about that. I think that I mean that's interesting. We do ask people once they've been kind of we unblinded resumes. We do ask how we pronounce their names. We make it to honor kind of and respect those pieces of of the process. But we haven't talked about the no camera portion of that yet. I have to bring that to the team. Actually, yeah, it was a really interesting
0: conversation because because the the hiring manager was saying this person is super qualified. But it brought up an issue because you know that if if they really wanted to be on camera, they could have figured out a way to be on camera, mm-hmm. but you could tell that there was something that they were uncomfortable about. And then I'm pretty sure that person ended up not getting the job because of it, which is a shame because they may have, they may have been the right person for it.
1: Anyway. All right. I learned something. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. My pleasure. (laughs) I'm like connecting all the dots of all the different (laughs) amazing conversations that I get to have. Well, Carrie, I really want to thank you for your time today. I feel like I have really enjoyed getting to know you and your mission and what you're doing. And if people want to follow you or work with you or connect with you
1: what direction would you point them in obviously our website upfronthealthcare.com and then secondarily like reach out on linkedin right send me a note mention this we'd love to connect to people it's a great way i found through doing these exercises to make new connections and learn from others and provide mentorship and that's another area that i'm really passionate about so would love to love to chat with whomever awesome thank you so much thanks joy Thanks for
0: listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's Merit Based Incentive Payment System, or MIPS, is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate.